I hope the rest of you came here today wanting to be impressed, not with the show that we could put on uh, or with those you might see around you, but I hope you came here with an expe expectation, and your expectation is to be impressed, specifically to be impressed with Christ, who is our great Savior. And in the sixth chapter of John, we have a great opportunity to be impressed with Him to see his power, to see him fulfill divine promises, to see his faithfulness so that we might see him like we see no one else and we might leave here trusting him all the more. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the opening 15 verses of the sixth chapter of the gospel. According to John, it's the feeding of the thousands. Okay, notice I didn't say the feeding of the 5,000. It is the feeding of the thousands, as we will see. And as we work our way through these 15 verses, if you'd like to have an outline, the outline I'm going to follow uh, would be one where we recognize nine striking realities. Nine striking realities about the feeding of the thousands. At least the first seven are from the text itself. But I had to add a couple extra ones that also come from the text itself. But when we get to verse 15 and you think I'm done, I got two more for you, okay? And then as we see everyone satisfied uh, by having their bellies filled with great fish and great bread, um, we will do the opposite. We will eat just a little tiny bit. And we will drink just a little tiny bit because we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I'm not being trivial. Um, we will remember that the greatest satisfaction of all is actually what Christ provides in giving himself up for us as a perfect sacrifice. So may this be the, the precursor. He's the one that temporary, temporarily filled bellies, if you will. But he will go on to say in John chapter 6 that he will fill us so that we have eternal life because he gives himself. And by celebrating the Lord's Supper, we're remembering that today. It's the fifth sign in the gospel according to John. It's the one miracle recorded in all four gospels. Striking reality, number one, the objectivity. The objectivity. What I mean by that is the realness. They're in a real place. He's talking to real people in real time, in real space, in real history. All of these things happen. Let's go ahead and see. Look at verse 1 with me if you would. After this, Jesus, the historic figure, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. This is not, and I quote, an idyllic world close to the border of the Outer Rim Territories called Naboo. From Wikipedia. Star Wars trivia. This is not Naboo. Okay? Or for you older people, this is not, the, the, this is not Klingon. Okay? See, we have more older people than younger people, apparently, or they're paying attention. They're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, otherwise known as Tiberias, historic place. That means they're on the east side. The west side would be the one that's more populated by the Jews. And Jesus goes to get away. He goes to the east side. This is such a real place. This lake that's in northern Israel that is uh, approximately 13 miles north to south uh, in length. And it would be seven miles wide. Okay? 
the Sea of Galilee, Tiberias. It has other names as well. They're at this real place. It's so real. Dare I ask for a show of hands? How many of you swam in the Sea of Galilee? See, I knew there's at least, at least a couple. I've wakeboarded on the Sea of Galilee. You got nothing on me. So the, the, the reality is, I stress it because we're not, again, talking about mythology or something that's not historical, okay? I see someone with their map open, right? Looking at their Bible and they're looking at the book of maps. And they can see there, oh yeah, there it is, right there, real place. We need to see again and again in the gospel accounts the objectivity of it all, the realness of it all. Jesus really took on flesh. He really did these things in real time and space. That becomes very important to us because we have real sins, because we're real people. But the objectivity doesn't stop there. Keep reading. Look at verse 2. And a large crowd. This is not some back room, hiding, hucksterism, let's make something up, large crowd. We're going to see a large enough crowd, it could be some 20,000 people, large crowd, okay? The United Center, where the Bulls play, capacity 20,000 people. TD Ameritrade holds 24, so it's not a perfect fit, but you get the idea. There are tons of people there. This is not backwoods, back alley, secret, made up stuff. There's a large, massive crowd, maybe 20,000 people. I'll tell you why in just a little while. You'll have to just take my word for it for now, but don't take my word ultimately. So lots of people, let's keep reading. A large crowd was following him. If you were a Greek scholar, you'd say, oh, and they've been following him. They're, they're continually following him. This isn't just a one-time one deal. Was following him because they saw, again, same kind of uh, verb. They, they, they saw and they had been seeing and they were seeing. Okay? This is not, have my eyes tricked me? No, this had been going on. The many people who have, have been following him are seeing as they saw, they were sawing, if you will, (laughs) the signs that he was, uh, again, here we go again, same kind of verb, doing on the sick. Using terrible English. Trying to have you see, oh, this 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 is reality. Not a reality show, which is anything but reality. This is real. This is what's really happening. It's a striking feature of this account as well as the other accounts. Then it says in verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain. Think hillside, not Rockies, if you will. He went up on the mountain, the mountainside, the hillside, and there he sat down with his disciples. Let's move on to striking feature number two. The strategic timing. The strategic timing. We see this in verses four to seven. Verse four, right away we see strategic time, timing. Now the Passover, aha, there's timing. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. It's Passover time. Passover is mentioned three times uh, in the gospel according to John. If it's Passover, it means lots of things. 
Passover, major Jewish holiday. What is Passover? Passover is remembering God's deliverance of His people who were enslaved by the Egyptians. And God would provide the Passover lamb. And God would provide the Exodus, right? That's what what Exodus is all about, is this. And God would provide food for them, right? He would provide manna for them. He would provide for His people during their wilderness wanderings. So that becomes significant. Exodus from Egypt. Redemption from slavery out of Egypt. Physical slavery, powerfully so. From what we know in the Bible and outside of the Bible, this would have been a time of of great nationalistic zeal. Someone likened it to the 4th of July in America, but I mean, maybe that's as sophisticated as we Americans are. But there's patriotism. But probably a kind of patriotism that would dwarf ours. It's tied to religion. But there would have been nationalistic zeal from what we read. And then think about Passover while you're under Roman occupation, which they were. So you're under Rome's authority. You don't want to be under Rome's authority. It's Passover. What is Passover celebrating? Well, freedom. And God freed us from bondage so that we could be on our way to the promised land. Now, ah, they're in the promised land, but it doesn't look very promised landish because we're under the oppression of the Roman government. And so you could see where this would be a rub. This would be a problem. We're supposed to be celebrating our freedom, but it's kind of a faux freedom. And of all all places, we should be free in Zion, in Jerusalem. But we're not. One writer puts it this way. Passover was a time when the Jews expected the prophet to provide manna from heaven the way Moses had done. Maybe we're getting a little bit of ahead of ourselves, but there's this expectation for deliverance again. How about verse 5? Lest we never get done. This is, this is exciting stuff. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Verse 6 says, he said this to test him. For he himself knew, Jesus himself knew what he would do. Just just so we're aware, right? John's narrative makes it clear. This is all according to plan. There's an agenda. But let's, let's ask the question. Let's get people to think out loud. Verse 7 says, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. The NIV didn't translate it. Denarii is the translation. But the NIV interpreted it rightly. Not a translation, but an interpretation. Eight months wages. Even eight months' wages wouldn't be enough for people just to get a little bite. It wouldn't feed them. This is a huge problem. 
I don't think I'm reading too much into it because of the greater context and it's Passover and Jesus is going to go on and we'll look at it next week and talk about Passover and talk about the manna from heaven. This, this, this would be what would constitute, in comparison, a complaint. And I'm thinking ahead. I'm thinking about manna from heaven, people complaining about food. Philip's like, there's, there's no way. This, this, we can't do it. This is impossible. There won't be any eating on the east side of the Sea of Tiberias. It's impossible. I think this is intentionally reminiscent, and most others think it's intentionally reminiscent, I don't know anybody who doesn't, of what happened with Israel and Moses. Numbers 11.13 would be one sample text. Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. We could look at other texts, but there's an example of it. We have a huge problem. What is happening in Galilee is purposefully the same. Passover, purposely reminiscent. And what's going to happen? You know and I know. Jesus is going to meet the need. He is going to do the otherwise impossible. And they're not all going to get just a little nibble, right? So I don't care what the question is, Jesus is the answer, right? (laughs) Yet again. We do care what the question is. This, This really sets up the rest of the chapter in a stunning way. If there was some way to preach 71 verses, I'm sure there is a way, but I wouldn't be good at it. It's just setting everything up. This is going to be to meet these physical needs of these people, which is reminiscent of wilderness wanderings, Exodus stuff. It's going to go on to talk about, it wasn't Moses that gave you that food. We're going to get into that next week. And Jesus is pointing to himself. He's going to fill their bellies. He's going to let them know that he's the eternal one who was actually the one who provided in the wilderness. And then eventually he's going to get to the fact that they have a spiritual need and they need to believe in him because he will say, I am the bread of life. But we can't get that far. But I want to go that far. Striking feature number three, the supernatural. This is the obvious one. The supernatural, striking feature number three. Verse eight, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, verse nine, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves. Think cakes, not Sarah Lee from Hy-Vee or Baker's. He's got, he's got, he's got some little, little bread cakes. And two fish. Think, not mahi mahi. Um, <laughs> think sardines. Think, I mean, what's worse than a sardine? Think, think pickled sardine. <laughs> Some people think they would have been pickled fish, like side dish kind of stuff, snacks. I bought some sardines not too long ago because I wanted my little boys to try them because they've never tried them. And they've been in the cupboard, I think, for like two years. 
We need to do it maybe today. Maybe today's the day. We can... Never mind. I love making my kids eat things. <laughs> right, Allie? Smoked oysters are the funnest. You know, the tin, they're, they're like... Anyway. Pray for the Abendroth family. We're in lots of counseling. Barley loaves, um, from what we do know, this is poor people food. People didn't like the barley loaves. Okay? They want wheat bread. They don't want barley bread. They want wheat bread. So this is, this is poor people food. Um, how many does he have? Five. Barley loaves, two fish. But what are they for so many? In other words, this will never do, right? In other words, what's the point? There's, there's, we, in other words, we have nothing. I pose the question, why mention what this boy has? I would answer that by saying it's mentioned to highlight the point that there's no possible way this could ever work. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. That's, that's feeding posture. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. How about that? Prepare the people to be fed. Mark's gospel account says they're sitting in groups of 50s and 100s. It's time to eat. But do notice we have a boy by way of contrast, and now we have 5,000 men. So they're not, we've got 5,000 men, but we also have at least one boy, and it would be at least fair to suggest there might be more than one boy. If these represent heads of household, those who would be married, who would have children, that's why commentators say it could be 15,000, could be as many as 20,000 people. We don't know. But the, the account is only highlighting the 5,000, the men. Now, if there are only 5,001 there because we're like being super literal or something, or you know what I mean, just artificial, it's still a lot. <laughs> it's, still, there's, it's still, there's no possible way, but... In all likelihood, it's not 5,000. It's more than 5,000. Matthew's account in chapter 14, verse 21, talks about women and children. Lots of people. Okay, here we go. They're sitting down, ready to be fed. What's up with these guys? Did the women not get to sit and the kids not going to sit? It's not right. Okay, verse 11. Um, just kidding. Jesus then took the loaves... And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. The striking reality is the supernatural nature of what just happened. And they eat as much as they want. And in essence, they had no food. 
So we should say, Jesus is supernatural. Jesus can do the impossible. Jesus can do things that can't otherwise be done. Jesus is unique. Jesus is powerful. We should definitely be saying that. I think we need to be saying more than that. But we can't say anything less than that. And there's all kinds of implications regarding the one you trust, the one who's, who you're trusting in as Savior to meet your needs. But we have to see He's unique. He did what could not be done. Just trying to get my mind around this, I wrote down, He is uniquely like other greats, yet uniquely better. He's uniquely like Moses. We're going to see that. We could look at other texts. He's uniquely like David. Some suggest this is uniquely like Elijah and Elisha. Perhaps. I mean, in certain ways he is. Miraculous feeding. So he's uniquely like others. There's that right connection to the past and those who would prefigure him. And yet he's uniquely better than the others. Now, you might be thinking, why is this guy getting so excited about this? I mean, in one sense, so far we haven't seen anything that exciting. Unless you're a sardine, not a gluten-free person or something. Yeah, they ate. Great. But see, in the greater context, we're seeing he's the one. And in the greater context, where we're going to go with this is he can not only make people physically satisfied, but all of this is to make the connection to him being the greater one and him making people spiritually satisfied by saying, I'm the bread that you actually really need. So I'm excited because I know the 71 verses. You guys with me? How about number four? Striking feature number four, the abundance. And and what I wrote down is the abundance, and then maybe you want to put in parentheses, messianic. Because when Messiah, when Christ, when the deliverer who had been promised comes, he's going to bring abundance. He's going to bring blessing. He's going to bring fruitfulness. He's going to bring uh, in the land of milk and honey, so to speak. We saw him bring this, this wine, which was symbolic of Messiah coming, and he's the one who brings abundance and joy. So that's a striking feature of the abundance. How about verse 12 where it says, And when they had eaten their fill, I put in my margin, of the richest tasting poor people food. It was like the best barley bread ever. If that's what it was. And when they had eaten their fill, See, there's, there's, there's plenty. It's plentiful. This is messianic kind of stuff. He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten them. And in verse 11, they ate as much as they wanted, we saw. One commentator put it this way. The bountiful meal evokes Old Testament messianic prophecy. When Messiah comes, you'll be happy. You won't be hungry. You won't be fighting 
There won't be war. There won't be famine. There won't be thirsting. There won't be any of these things grumbling. No, he's going to bring satisfaction. Jeremiah 31 talks about a a feast with abundance. And it talks about satisfaction with God's goodness. And you think Jeremiah 31, right? New covenant kind of place in Jeremiah. When that comes, there'll be satisfaction. Another text would be Isaiah, Isaiah 25, which is talking about what is ultimately still future, even for us, I think. But Messiah has to be the one who's going to bring that in, and so he's giving the preview that he can do it. Isaiah 25 talks about a feast of rich food being given by God. Yeah, he's the one. Striking feature number five. The recognition of Jesus as the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater Moses. They see him as the greater Moses. 14 says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, right, the feeding of the thousands, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. This is it. He's the one. He's the one from Deuteronomy 18. I think we talked about that a couple, two, three weeks ago. Deuteronomy 18 talks about one who would come who's like Moses. Who's better than Moses. What? Better than our hero Moses in the Old Testament? He will be something extraordinary if he's better than Moses. Moses is the man. Yeah. Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. 18 says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words, this is God, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And the Jewish people are seeing Jesus of Nazareth at least for this moment in time, he's the greater Moses. I think they're right, don't you? Yeah. He's the one. Now, as a little asterisk, I would say, Jesus isn't like Moses in every way, but he's Moses-like. He's better than Moses. That's a whole other discussion for a different time. But he's the greater Moses, the greater prophet. He's the one. Now again, we're going to get into this, but we won't get into it today with Moses in the wilderness and the manna and the food and Moses is the mediator between the people and God. Well, we need to see those connections though now even by way of preview. Jesus is the greater mediator. He's the greater prophet who speaks for God. And he's the one who provides. And Jesus is going to make it clear that Moses actually isn't the one who provided in the wilderness. And that's going to be a rub. But for now we need to see. That's a striking feature. He's the Deuteronomy 18 one. Okay, finally to verse 15. Striking feature number six. The faithfulness of Jesus. The faithfulness of Jesus. 
15 says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I think that, that that's stressing the faithfulness of Jesus. It may be stressing other things, like his supernatural power. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what's about to happen. We can appreciate it better too now, I think, if we think in terms of there's, there's, there's 5,000 men. That's a pretty sizable group. I mean, that would be the kind of group that uh, maybe they can't take on all of Rome who's occupying, but that, that, that would be a problem. The Roman officials would want to break up that sizable of a group. So here we've got 5,000 men, all of these people, and they're already all revved up because of the fireworks. No, that would be 4th of July. But they're already all feeling this nationalistic zeal. This is our holiday. This is Mount Zion just to the south. This is our land. God promised this to us. Here's the greater Moses. It's time to make him king. We, we, We can get it faithfulness of Jesus would be Lamb of God Passover Lamb as He will be called who will be slain the, 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 the road to the throne includes the road to cross, the cross and Calvary and He will go and give Himself up for His people to save them from their sins He's faithful to the redemptive plan of His Father and of the triune God. There is no possible way he's going to let them make him their kind of king. He has his focus where it must be. Remember when he referred to himself as the temple that would be destroyed and then rebuilt three days later. That is going to happen, that has to happen. Jesus is utterly committed to having that happen. Thus, the striking reality is the faithfulness, the fidelity, the loyalty of Jesus. Now, to speculate, period. To speculate for a moment, some have wondered Is this a temptation? I don't know. I'm going to be slow to say it's a temptation because it doesn't say it's a temptation. But it's not altogether different from the temptation of Jesus. Forgo Calvary and all of this is yours. It's at least an imitation of the satanic temptation. And no matter what, official temptation or not, it's an opportunity for Jesus yet again to show he is faithful to his Father. He is loyal. He is faithful. How about, as we're going to see next week, to those who've been given to him by his Father. That would be the you and the me. And his faithfulness this way and this way is unstoppable. Oh yes, he's proving himself yet again. And that, that's striking.
He's the one we can trust. He's the faithful servant. Seven and eight, rather quickly. Striking feature, number seven, the placement. The placement. And I mean the placement of, the, of this text in the whole chapter. I've already done this multiple times, so I, I can explain it briefly. But it's striking to me how this feeding of the thousands fits in with the whole chapter, which is all about bread. And for it's, it's super cool. The longer you're a Christian, the more you can put the pieces together and you can read the Bible more, more holistically and kind of keep things together and keep things straight. But here's a great example. It's, it's all even in chapter 6. Physically satisfying them, showing Passover. There's a connection. Then he's going to move on and he's going to talk about being there at the Passover historically. That's next. And then he's going to move on to make it clear to them that those things were not meant to be ends in and of themselves. Whether it's this at Galilee or with their forefathers in the wilderness, it was always intended to be what would point to him because he is the bread of life. So don't, don't, don't forget this, what we're learning over here today, because this is a, a, a setup not in a trick, tricky way, but it's, it's, it's preparing, it's, it's hoeing the, the row, getting us ready to have him say, I'm the bread of life. This over here kept you alive physically. In the wilderness, physical life. I'm the exclamation point. <laughs> I'm, I'm the fulfillment of it all. So I love that. I, I, I so love that. Uh, we're, we're not going to take the time to read 27 and following, but that, to me, that's exciting. To me, that's what made me excited all week long to study the passage. And it's kind of one of those aha moment, moments and you go, Tah, what have I been doing my whole life? See, what I would have done a lot it would be preach, feeding the thousands, Jesus is supernatural. Honor him as such. Anything wrong with that? I hope not. It's true. But it's all part of something so much more that's right there. But sometimes we forget. Finally, hate to end on this note, but we, we won't end. We'll go to celebrating the supper. Striking feature number eight, the lack. What's striking to me about this is the lack, and if you want me to keep giving you more, the lack of sappy sentimentalism. I just got an update on my Bible computer program. And I was trying to sort it all out because all I wanted to do was take some ESV verses and put them in my notes and it's just frustrating and I only want to use the language tools and a few other things, but you know, there's like, I don't know, 80,000 volumes or whatever it is. I have, it's like, so I'm trying to sort out this screen and move my stuff around and it took an hour to update and all this stuff and we no longer support your other one and we want more money. You know, they're all Christians though. But anyway, <laughs> so then it said, so I'm just trying to see all the stuff. There's some cool stuff and sermons. So I could put in John 6, 1 to 15 and click on sermons and then it gives me like sermons, full sermons, audio or Transcript? I'm not going to 
go on vacation. I can just start looking up sermons. <laughs> Never done it before in my life. Don't plan to start now. The first sermon that caught my eye, I think it was the first sermon in the list. The title of the sermon was, Little Things Count. Preached August 20th, 2016. I'd tell you the guy's name, but that would just stroke my flesh. Um, Here's a summary of the sermon. The text we just looked at. Never discount your talents or abilities. Never be discouraged about your worth or usefulness in the kingdom. You may think you can't contribute very much, but even small things are important in the kingdom of God. I'm like, are you you totally kidding me? Are you totally kidding me? Another guy tries harder, and the title of the sermon was Making Much of Little. The text is about Jesus. The text is not about the little boy with poor people food. Let me put it another way. The text isn't about you. Let me put it another way. You don't want it to be about you. The the effect was, all we have are some pickled sardine pieces and some poor people cakes. In in effect, we we don't have anything. Jesus, you have to be the one who meets our needs. See, you, you don't want it to be about you. You want it to be, we, we want it to be about Jesus. And think about this. If it is about us, if we just derail the whole thing and we read the whole Bible looking for ourselves, it's going to lead to one of two things. You're either going to feel really good about yourself. You know what? I gave a little. God likes me. He's going to do big things with me because I give a little. Glad you feel self-righteous. Or... You never feel like you give enough. It's never enough, never enough, never enough, never enough. It's debilitatingly guilt-filled. Instead, it's we don't have anything. So we need Christ. And it sets us up to be physically satisfied in this text so that we can see that that's in Him that we're spiritually satisfied. It changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. That's striking. It's very striking. I won't tell you to do more, try harder today. I'm going to tell you to see that even what we do have isn't going to do any good. So we need Jesus to meet our need for us. Oh, by the way, yes, out of gratitude, then we want to be good, faithful disciples and we want to follow him and we want to absolutely. But not in this text. This text should have us leaving today in our families and by ourselves or wherever we're going saying, I can trust in Jesus. He's trustworthy. I know I can trust in Him. Right? It's awesome. 
awesome. He's awesome. He's trustworthy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for all that you have for us and the way you've provided for us in your son Jesus who can meet physical needs but ultimately to show us that he meets spiritual needs. Thank you for the fact that we can celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning and we can eat bread and we can drink wine as Jesus said in remembrance of him that he gave his body to be broken, that he shed his blood, that he atoned for our sins, and he reconciled to us to you according to his grace, according to your love. Thank you so much that we have a matchless, caring, loving, providing, faithful Savior whose name is Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.